1: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: This
0: is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio.
3: That's the real deal. That's the real deal.
4: Donald Trump launched his Never Surrender High Top Sneakers at SneakerCon last week, a limited edition selling for $399. You, You
3: know, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I have some incredible people that work with me on things, and they came up with this. And this is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years. And I think it's going to be a big success.
4: It didn't take long for the garish gold sneakers with a stars and stripes design around the ankle and a huge letter T on the side to be mocked, including a skit on Saturday Night Live.
3: In terms of basketball, movie pastiche, and with regard to shoes, I think we've done a wonderful... White men can try.
4: But it's the bright red soles on the sneakers that have lawyers talking. Is luxury brand Christian Louboutin, known for its iconic red soles going to sue for trademark infringement. Joining me is Susan Scafidi, director of the Fashion Law Institute at Fordham Law School. So these never-surrender high-top sneakers, which are gold, Trump's favorite color apparently, but with that bright red sole, screams, I'm a Christian Louboutin sneaker.
1: (laughs) Yes, it does. And I have a feeling that maybe there were a few trademark lawyers who had a hand in this shoe because it screams Louboutin, but then pulls back a little bit and says, yes, I'm Louboutin, but not quite, in part because the Louboutin trademark as registered is actually for women's shoes only. Also, you see the way on the side of the Trump shoe, the red outsole bleeds up a little bit onto the, the white foxing along the side of the shoe. And I think that's because in the, the landmark lawsuit, when Yves Saint Laurent and Louboutin were in court together here in New York, the trademark ultimately ended up being modified. Now, that trademark was about an all-red shoe with a red upper and a red outsole that Yves Saint Laurent had done. But the, the, the ultimate result of that lawsuit was that the uh, Louboutin trademark was modified so that there must be a contrast between the outsole and the upper. So maybe some clever trademark lawyer thought, well, if the red bleeds over a little bit, we could at least argue that there's not contrast. And we could argue that the registration is technically for women's, although that's not really smart thinking because of course there's a common law trademark in the U.S. And since Baton is so associated with red soles on shoes, including now for men's, including his own, even though at the time he, that he originally registered in the U.S., he did very few men's. I think that Louboutin, if it cared to take action, would in fact have a pretty good case.
4: And Nike might also be looking at these Trump sneakers?
1: Well, you know, Le is is the first glaring trademark reference, shall we say, and a reference to luxury in, in those shoes. But, you know, the silhouette is an awful lot like the Nike Air Force One nudge-wink Air Force One. So there's a lot going on here. And while uh, Nike does have trade dress registration on some elements of the Air Force One, including the Air Force One high tops that these resemble, I, again, think there might have been a trademark lawyer in the design room saying, you know, maybe move those panels just a little bit. Maybe don't do too many vertical lines down along the base of, of the foxing at the bottom of the shoe just before it touches the ground maybe make sure you don't use the wavy leather brackets that hold the eyelets for the shoelaces that, that are so classic and associated with the Nike Air Force One. And yet, for a sneaker aficionado, looking at that silhouette, it does have that reference, especially because the flag-like imagery around the top it also feels like a reference to the band around the top of an Air Force One. So overall, I can't imagine that Nike would be happy. They wouldn't necessarily have quite as strong a, t- a trademark claim as Baton, but I think that certainly it crossed a desk at Nike, the desk in the legal department.
4: The little differences, let's say the way the red goes up the side, do those little differences make that much of a difference in a lawsuit? Because most people just look, oh, it's got a red sole.
1: Well, it moves us from the realm of a straight-up counterfeit where we have something that is nearly or substantially identical to the realm of potential infringement. But because there is that generalized test in trademark, is there a likelihood of consumer confusion? Might some consumers think that this was a deal between uh, Donald Trump and Louboutin? That test for consumer confusion is what will control. And I think a, a consumer could absolutely be confused as to whether or not this was a licensed product or whether or not perhaps even Louboutin was endorsing Trump, which, of course, could be very controversial, uh, both for for the company itself and for the designer himself, but also for consumers who love
4: their movies. Yeah, and apparently some social media users were commenting on Instagram. One said, please, please, please sue Donald Trump for infringing on your Red Soul trademark. Another said, you licensed your trademark Red Soul to that wannabe blank. It's it's the comment
1: about licensing that is of more concern, right? Sue him does not show consumer confusion. Hey, how dare you license to him is of more concern from a legal perspective. And you know, there is an instance in the past when Christelle Louboutin went after a right-wing Belgian politician, a woman who was wearing his red soles regularly, but um, most importantly, for for purposes of his complaint on posters and, and ads that were, targeting Muslim immigrants to Belgium. And so in that case, it was the actual Louboutin product showing up in in her political ads and in her political statements. And so it was an even closer connection. But still, he seems to have been willing to wade into a fight before in a case in which a politician tried to associate with the Red Souls without his permission.
4: So that would be a business decision more, whether or not you want to go after... Trump and possibly get the backlash that people who go after Trump often do? But on the other hand, do you want your shoes associated with Trump?
1: Absolutely. At one level, it's a trademark decision. You don't want your red soul to just become a generic indicator of luxury, a shorthand for a a luxury product or a designer product. And so from a trademark perspective, to avoid becoming generic, you do have to engage in a certain amount of policing. But yes, at the level of a business decision, you have to decide, do you dare offend uh, Trump supporters or are you more concerned about Trump opponents? Some starting to boycott your shoe if they believe that there's a connection. And there's these additional concern in terms of a business decision of how much attention do you want to draw to these sneakers that were apparently a limited edition, one and done. If you think he might do it again, maybe you're more likely to file a lawsuit or at least send a cease and desist letter. But if you think it might just be a quick hit in the media and something that disappears in the public consciousness, do you want to be the entity keeping those red soles in the public consciousness, therefore underscoring the association between your brand and, and the politician?
4: What does Louboutin lose if they don't sue over the sneakers? Does their mark get watered down?
1: Sure. There's a potential for dilution of the mark. That is to say, now when we see a red sole, we automatically think Louboutin or do we think, well, it could be Louis Vuitton or it could be Trump. And that's the key to, to, to dilution. So they worry about dilution of the strength of that mark. And they worry about ultimately, if they allow this one and the next one and the next one to happen, the red soul mark actually becoming generic and the mark actually dying. We refer to the concept of genericide, right? Becoming generic can kill a mark because it's no longer serving as a source indicator to consumers. It's no longer a red flag telling consumers, hey, this is, in the the best possible way, a red flag. Uh, This is definitely a Louboutin, because you see the red soul.
4: Let's say Louboutin does sue. Would it be for trademark infringement or trademark dilution? It could be for both, trademark infringement and trademark dilution. And who do you think would have the better case in court? I mean, is there a chance that Louboutin could lose? There's always a chance. You never know what
1: you're going to get going into court. On the other hand, uh, Louboutin has a very solid footprint with this trademark. And so I think that in a kickboxing match uh, with these shoes, I I would think that Louboutin may very well come out on top.
4: I assume it also just doesn't want to be associated with that garish clunky gold sneaker
1: in terms of reputational concern yes uh, you absolutely don't want to be associated with something that you find distasteful not only because of the individual it might be associated with but because of the style itself or lack thereof they are indeed quite (laughs)
4: quite dramatic you're so nice to put it that way susan
1: (laughs) Well, then there's the question of the quasi-flag iconography as well, which actually is, is an interesting problem because the, the U.S. has law on the books about disrespect or disparagement of the flag technically, you're not supposed to use the flag in advertising. In fact, the trademark office won't register a trademark that includes the flag. Now, obviously, there's not actually a flag on the shoes, just a nod to the flag with a handful of stars and stripes. But we're still, even though First Amendment law has, oh, my goodness, for the last 50 years uh, prevented enforcement of any kind of law that would penalize anyone for putting a flag on clothing or putting a flag on shoes where it might be dirtied or damaged or otherwise disparaged. Nevertheless, you're walking a fine line uh, when you decide to put a flag or something that looks like a flag somewhere that might be considered disrespectful.
4: So do you think that Louboutin will at least send a cease and desist letter I would hope so.
1: Unfortunately, the one of the concerns for Louboutin is if Louboutin sends a cease and desist letter, it will immediately be posted. And so it comes back to the question of do we think Trump will do this again or do we think Trump's licensee will do this again? And how much attention do we want to draw to this if it was indeed a one and done at SneakerCon?
4: The company has left itself an out because purchasers of the sneakers may not actually get red sole sneakers when their order arrives in july on the website it says the images shown are for illustration purposes only and may not be an exact representation of the product so that leaves them room to get rid of the red soles it does
1: Now, if they were to do that, and particularly uh, if they were forced to do that, the illegal action, I think some consumers would be upset because they're not getting what was pictured and what was promised. That's not a minor change. That's a significant stylistic change. But nevertheless, they have indeed left themselves technically illegal out. But of course, if the purpose of these sneakers is in part to court your audience and to court the audience of sneakerheads, a young male, more urban audience, then you, you absolutely don't want to undermine that essentially advertising or campaign effort by making your customers angry when they receive the shoes. You don't want lots of negative publicity following on the initial release of the shoe.
4: Thanks so much, Susan. It's always an enlightening and fun conversation when you're on bringing fashion into the law. That's Susan Scafidi, professor at Fordham Law School and director of the Fashion Law Institute. I'm June Grosso and you're listening to Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Let
3: me try it again. Do you believe that minorities in America today need special help to achieve, to succeed? Yeah, again, Senator, from all persons, no matter what community they come from. Yes, sir. But do you understand the question? Am I not being clear? No, I understand. Yes, sir. Okay. would you answer for me, please, sir? Well, Senator, I'm stating again. Yes, sir. uh, No, it's pretty simple.
4: But it's never really simple when Republican Senator John Kennedy is quizzing judicial nominees on the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Louisiana senator manages to get inside the heads of nominees, often tripping them up like no other senator does. Joining me is Bloomberg Law's Tiana Headley who's written about, shall we say, Senator Kennedy's special way of questioning nominees to the bench. How are Senator Kennedy's questions or questioning different from that of other senators?
2: This is a committee of of a lot of lawyers. There's 15 total on the committee and several others who've been uh, former law professors as well. But uh, Senator Kennedy, both a former law professor, still a lawyer, gets into nominees has by asking sort of these, frankly, on the spot, very scary questions about the law, about court procedure, about legal doctrine. And he's stumped quite a few nominees over the years.
4: It's been called the Kennedy quiz,
2: the Kennedy quiz, the Kennedy six minute bar exam, as Chairman Durbin has
4: called it in the past. And just tell us a little bit about Kennedy's background.
2: He was an adjunct law professor at Louisiana State University. He graduated um, law school from the University of Virginia um, and is an Oxford University graduate. And in these questions, you can kind of see that he's not only drawn on that sort of academic background um, from his law school um, and legal education days, but also his experience um, teaching at Louisiana State University posing questions that he told me in a hallway interview that he would expect his, his, his students to know.
4: <laughs> do these questions cover the gamut like a bar exam would, or are they focused in specific areas?
2: It really runs the gamut where you can expect questions such as, you know, what does the 13th Amendment do? So almost middle school, uh, civics class, to, you know, what's a motion in uh, limiting? about a courtroom procedure, what's the Brady motion, right, for, you know, turning over evidence that's favorable to a defendant.
4: And last month, did one nominee actually withdraw her name from consideration for a federal trial court seat because yes. of a question he asked?
2: Yes. So Charnel Bielkingren, um, she was nominated for a trial court seat in Washington state. One might sort of... Um, make that connection, right that the controversy uh, after her confirmation hearing in which she was unable to um, define articles 5 and two of the Constitution, once that hearing um, was over, there was huge backlash, most of it sort of from conservatives to this Biden nominee saying that she if she can't even you know define articles of the Constitution, like why would she make a good judge? basically. And, you know, she ultimately was not renominated in the new year um, and officially asked the White House to withdraw her name from consideration for the judgeship.
4: There was a similar incident during the questioning of a Trump nominee to the D.C. District Court, and I remember that. He withdrew his name, too. Tell us about that.
2: Yes. Yeah, so we're going all the way back to uh, 2017 So this is Matthew Peterson, um, the former Federal Election Commission chair, who had very little sort of a practicing litigation background to draw from as far as trying to answer questions about, you know, trials and just legal practice generally. You know, he'd never tried a jury trial, either civil or criminal couldn't define the Dober standard, if I'm saying that correctly, couldn't define emotion and limity as I said before. Really, it was a very awkward five minutes of questioning where just time after time again, he either admitted to his lack of ex- of litigation experience or simply could not answer you know basic questions that uh, someone with trial experience would be able to answer
4: nominees go through extensive preparations for these hearings. How much are these Kennedy quizzes now a part of that?
2: So as far as our understanding of what that prep has looked like over the years, so Kennedy joined the Senate back in 2017. And so the nominees who would have been sort of subject to these quizzes have been Trump and Biden nominees. I was able to talk with some former Justice Department Officials under the Trump administration who were in charge of prepping nominees. They said to me that they would sort of go over mock questions that Senator Kennedy might have asked, you know, relating to legal procedure, etc. A former official told me that they would hold mock hearings in which Staffers would portray different senators, uh, including Kennedy. I, I would really love to see that Kennedy That's, impression. Uh, yeah. um, but it's really trying to g- get these nominees in the frame of mind of you know answering an on the spot mini bar exam. I'll just add to that too as well that th- these officials did say that they would sort of generally provide some form of practice for the nominees, but ultimately. You know, it's what has that person done in their professional career that has, you know, prepared them for that moment, right? It's, we're not going to have you study for the bar exam again, but what have you done in your career? What has been your le- legal practice been that should, in and of itself, prepare you for this moment? And, you know, there's some debates about whether if one does or does not do well on these quizzes, if that really reflects on... The breadth of that person's professional experience.
4: But nominees from district court nominees to Supreme Court nominees usually steer clear of making commitments to specific legal issues. Does that annoy Kennedy? You know, you'll hear Supreme Court nominees say, well, that may come before me. Kennedy, much like any other senator, understands that they nominees
2: can't say that they will rule this in this way on any particular issue or case. There have been some tense exchanges between nominees. In those exchanges, he will say, I know the White House has coached you not to answer my questions, but I need to know how you think. That's actually uh, a statement that was reflected in, in one of my conversations with a former Department of Justice official who is in charge of prepping nominees that Kennedy does indeed want to understand how nominees think, how they they think through issues. He's not necessarily looking for commitments on legal matters, on cases that could come before a nominee, but in this sort of Socratic exchange that a law professor might have with a student where they're talking through a legal issue or a legal doctrine, he does, this Department of Justice official was telling me, he does want an active exchange with the nominee.
4: It seems like he takes delight in his reputation as a hard questioner, sort of like street cred on the <laughs> committee. He did an Instagram reel. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I
2: believe back in December, uh, on his Instagram page, he posted a reel that was almost a montage, if you will, of some of his famous moments of questioning Biden nominees over the earlier months of, of 2023, where you have clips of him questioning, at the time, nominee Cato Cruz for the District of uh, Colorado, Charnel Grant for the, a trial court seat in Washington state. And really, these clips really showcase these nominees being, frankly, very stumped by these questions. And so I think that's a pretty fair reading that he does take some delight in this reputation that he has gained for being a, a formidable questioner of
4: nominees. I don't know if formidable is the word. He just goes in areas where other senators don't. And it seems to me, having watched this for a while, that it's like a game for him. And Does the inability to answer one legal question show that a nominee is not qualified for the bench? I mean, even Supreme Court justices don't know all the answers. That's one of the reasons they ask all the questions they do at oral arguments. It just seems like it's for show. I think those are
2: all uh, incredibly fair points to make, right? (laughs) In talking with people for this story, one thing that came up was just sort of the nature of the questioning, where you have someone sort of sitting down in front of these really bright lights, um, in front of some of the most powerful politicians in the country, and all of a sudden you're asked about this amendment that you probably haven't thought of in a while, (laughs) and you're meant to sort of define it on the spot in that moment. If you don't, you might end up in a highlight reel on Kennedy's Instagram page.
4: You spoke to the Justice Program Director at the Alliance for Justice, and I thought that what he told you really hit home. He said that Kennedy doesn't seem to recognize that judges have access to libraries. And, you know, these questions get briefed, and they have law clerks. Did other people that you spoke to think that this was you know not really the best way to approach these hearings? Yes. For the most part,
2: most of the sources I spoke to highlighted the realities, in their view, the realities of what it means to be not just a judge, but to practice the law generally, where it isn't just recalling some memorized quantum of the law, that it is about research. It is about looking through the, the legal questions being presented. It is about, you know, going through case law that you may or may not be familiar with. And all of these very important decisions that judges make, um, in the course of, of legal practice, in the course of their job, aren't necessarily made on the spot. They're made after countless hours of doing the research, of analyzing legal issues, et cetera. And so and I was just talking with some judges, former and current federal judges for a previous story that said, Look, most of these cases don't even go to trial, Mm -hmm. right? We don't even have a bench trial or or a jury trial. Much of this is done in, in sort of these motions that are made between parties.
4: A lot of motion practice in the federal courts. Well, it's a really interesting article. Thanks so much, Tiana. That's Tiana Headley of Bloomberg Law.
2: Stick? Yeah, I, I guess you're not giving me
1: a whole lot of comfort in this about how peculiar this would be, that we could have different rules in
2: different states. Um, we could have different rules depending on, on, on the time that the challenge is brought.
3: What if other states have uh, required 2 percent interest? And the Second Circuit says one thing, and the Fifth Circuit or the Tenth Circuit or whatever says something else, and then you have issues of collateral estoppel. It just seems like a complicated situation, but you uh, are able to assess the whole thing. So just explain why this would not cause practical nightmares.
4: Yes, it did seem that many of the Supreme Court justices, like Elena Kagan and Samuel Leto, We're concerned about the flood of factual disputes that might arise if the court reverses a Second Circuit decision finding that the National Bank Act preempts New York law. The justices struggled to resolve the conflict between the National Bank Act, a Civil War era law protecting national banks, with a New York law requiring all banks to pay at least 2 percent interest on mortgage escrow accounts. The question is whether state policies significantly interfere with the National Bank's operations. A few of the justices seem taken with the unusual fact that the Biden administration was appearing in support of the New York bank customers who argue that the Bank of America is obligated to pay interest on their escrow accounts. Neither the Department of the Treasury nor the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency joined the administration's brief which argued that the OCC had misinterpreted the Dodd-Frank provision before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch.
3: And you seem to have disavowed everything the OCC's done since Dodd-Frank. What do we do with that?
4: Joining me is a bank regulation expert, Joe Lignac, a partner at Dorsey & Whitney. Tell us about the background of the case.
3: The background has to do with a statute that was adopted as part of Dodd-Frank, which limited the ability to preempt state laws. There's about 15 or 16 states around the country that require that a lender that has an escrow account for a consumer customer has to pay interest on the escrow funds. In New York, and actually in California, it's 2%. And there was contrary decisions in California and in New York saying a national bank does or does not have to pay interest on the escrows. And because there was a conflict between in the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit, it went up to the Supreme Court. And the dispute is whether or not the application of this statute, which was amended in Dodd-Frank, alters the ability to preempt consumer laws.
4: Do you want to take a stab at explaining preemption here? All right. So now why don't you tell us about preemption here? Preemption is the
3: ability of of a national bank and other types of federal charters, such as a Savings and Loan Association, not to have to follow. It actually goes back to 1982 in the De Cuesta case, in which the Supreme Court said, gee, we want to help the federal savings and loans, and state laws is preempted. Now, what happened immediately after that is national banks said, hey, I want a piece of this as well, and two very prominent lawyers ended up creating a series of interpretations and opinions that really buttressed federal preemption for national banks. And that continued for about a decade until It was cut back by the adoption of the statute, which is Section 25B of the National Bank Act, which said, well, there is preemption, but if you're dealing with a consumer law in a state, you have to show that the effect of that law prevents or interferes with the exercise of the national bank's powers. And the essence of the case was, okay, what do those words mean? What is the standard? Is it a legal standard or is it a factual standard? And it really ended up being a complex issue that the court kept coming back to trying to figure out, you know, what do we do in this situation?
4: Let's talk about what the justice's concerns seemed to be during the oral arguments. Justice Elena Kagan and Samuel Alito worried that requiring courts to make these decisions on a statute by statute basis would require a lot of evidentiary questions. It would be fact-laden. So Alito said, a district judge is going to have a trial to determine the effect of this on all national banks operating in New York and ended by saying it could cause practical nightmares. Explain what their concerns are there. One
3: of the questions is, is it simply a a pure matter of law? Is it a matter of of, of fact, meaning you've got to introduce evidence? And Kakin said, well, does that mean that we end up litigating in all 50 states, claiming that there is no preemption. And by the way, if you do that, maybe you have B of A who's going to do a good job, but maybe you've got a smaller bank that does not do such a good job. Does the poor job then apply to everyone, or do you just keep litigating and litigating all over again? And she seemed to be indicating, and I think correctly so, that this would be a very significant burden on the courts to have to review factually, what is taking place and what the impact is of a particular uh, state law on a national bank. That kept coming up. And and contrary to that, uh, Justice Alito said, well, one of the standards here is that it has to significantly interfere with the ability of a national bank to exercise its powers and the question was raised well wait a minute this is potentially a pricing issue in this case because you've got to pay interest on uh, on an escrow account isn't pricing automatically significantly interfering with a national bank's powers they were really struggling with you know what do we do and what is the rule we have to apply
4: the lawyer for the petitioner new york homeowners conceded that Dodd-Frank doesn't establish a bright-line test for determining whether a state banking law poses a significant problem for national banks. What did he propose?
3: I would say that the what they were proposing was somewhat murky in nature. They were proposing more of a qualitative standard as opposed to a quantitative standard. But that goes towards the issue of, uh, do we have to submit evidence in terms of challenging uh, the preemption issue.
4: And what was the argument from the Bank of America?
3: The, the argument for the Bank, the Bank of America was actually uh, very straightforward in that the Bank of America was advocating that the standard in that was put into the statute is really a recitation of what currently was the rule as announced in the Barnett Bank case. And that was attacked or questioned by the, um, by the court. And again, here's, here's where the, I think the, the concerns come in. On one hand, if you adopted the Bank of America rule, you would always preempt compared to the opposite side where you would very rarely preempt. With the absence of guidance and this, this highly questionable standard, which is now in the statute, I think all members of the court were very uncomfortable with creating something out of whole cloth that would then be applied by the courts.
4: Something that you don't see often, at least in the cases I cover, I don't know about bank cases, the Biden administration was supporting the petitioner homeowners. Neither the Department of the Treasury nor the Office of the Comptroller of Currency joined that brief. And in its brief, The Biden administration said that the OCC's brief supporting Bank of America in the Second Circuit misinterpreted the Dodd Frank provision. Justice Neil Gorsuch said to the Solicitor General, You seem to have disavowed everything the OCC's done since Dodd Frank. What do we do with that? So, what's going on there with the OCC?
3: Well, the the OCC has always been, as I mentioned a, uh, a few moments ago, has always been a strong proponent of preemption for national banks. And subsequent to to the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act, actually issued a an interpretation indicating how they would proceed in the future in light of this this new section 20 25b, which effectively said we're going to keep on doing what we've done in the past, and and we view 23b as basically codifying uh, the Barnett Bank case as we have interpreted it in the past. The Department of Justice and the Biden administration took a decidedly different view saying that the Second Circuit applied the wrong rule. You know, there's a disagreement between the the banking agency, the OCC, that has the uh, obligation of interpreting statutes with the Biden administration, which took more of, I think, a consumer-based political position contrary to the OCC.
4: So where do you think the court will go with this case?
3: Well, the... The Department of Justice filed actually two briefs. At the end, what they said was you should vacate the case and send it back to the lower courts because they applied an erroneous standard. In other words, duck the issue and let the lower courts all around the country develop the jurisprudence here in a manner so that when it comes back to the court, there's more meat, if you will, on the bone to be able to better handle this. And, and I think that, that that's reflective of the fact that in the oral argument, there was really skepticism as to what do you really want us to do here? Because there's not a lot of support for, you know, for a particular rule as opposed to making it up at a whole cost. One of the things which I, I think has not necessarily been uh, addressed a lot is the effect of preemption on state banks. Actually, state banks frequently like preemption because what has arisen in many states is something known as parity statutes, meaning that if a national bank has a particular power, say, for example, preemption, then the state bank regulator is able to grant the same power or preempt state laws to the same extent that a national bank has done. And that's been used in many cases as a shield against overly zealous legislatures, who want to micromanage lending and deposit activities. It's something which is is kind of peculiar to the whole area, but uh, has frequently been used in a very useful manner by state banks when you're dealing with legislation.
4: Thanks for being on the show. That's Joe Lignac of Dorsey & Whitney. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.